Hello and welcome to Peaks, where we take a closer look at the most exciting peak years in the lives of the people that dominated pop culture. My name's John Koppel. My very special guest today is Erica McNichol. Hey, John. How's it going? Good. I'm really excited about this one. Our subject for today is the purple one, yes. Prince, and his iconic run from 1982 to 1987. So we're going to have so much to discuss when it comes to him. The guy obviously had an incredible career, a densely packed career. It's a little bit daunting to talk about Prince because Prince fans are not casual. They're absolute freaks. It's it's like trying to tackle the Beatles or Springsteen or Pearl Jam. It's like, I, I know that somebody's going to tell me that I wasn't effusive enough with my praise. <laughs> it's like you called him a genius, but you didn't call him a visionary. Fashion icon. Yeah, fa- you missed the fashion. Iconoclast. And you, you forgot to mention the Sign of the Times is like the most brilliant album yeah. to come out. Okay, we're going to do our best. Yeah. But either way, I'm excited about it. I actually, I've been a fan of Prince, but definitely not a super freak level fan. And it's been great to have the excuse over the last couple of weeks. I've spent so much time with him. Yeah. It's not, he's a good person to spend time with when you're locked up in quarantine. He's, uh, he's a beautiful man. Yeah. I mean, he, I also did some prep. I actually found this uh, fan magazine while I was at the Jersey Shore at the Acme, or as they say here locally, the Acme. And um, it has his whole like life and, and different phases. It was, it was a good read. And then I've also got my, um, my 1984 Purple Rain uh, album that is for my original record collection at nine years old. And Ooh. then I also have some 45s and some B-sides here too. Oh, so you didn't just cram. You've, you've lived it. I mean, I've done my best. I don't know that I'm going to reach like, um, you know, deep nerd status, but uh, I definitely came prepared with some nuggets. Okay, good. I'm glad we could use that. I guess the first question that I would have to ask about Prince is whether he's the most versatile pop musician ever. Like people play this game when it comes to athletes. It's fun to think like, what if LeBron James played football right. or Bo Jackson and everything he was able to do, and he probably could have been an Olympic sprinter or whatever. But right. with Prince, you've got the singing, the dancing, every instrument composition to man. Lyrics. Yeah, he wrote all of it. And yeah. what I mean, is there is he alone on that? I mean, I would say, it, uh, so you're asking, just to restate the question, is Prince the greatest and most versatile pop star that we've ever seen? Well, I guess ver- to, to say whether he's the most versatile and the greatest, it's pretty similar. I was, I was asking whether he's the most versatile, but if you think he's the greatest, lay it out there. I mean, I think I'm a big Bowie fan. So in going through kind of all of the Prince canon, I definitely was thinking about uh, their similarities. And I think that, I think that Prince had the, um, output, he probably outclassed Bowie by the sheer amount of output and influence he had on other musicians of his same time period, you know, so like Manic Bunday wrote for the Bengals. He wrote nothing compares to you for Sinead O'Connor, even wrote purple rain factoid for Stevie Nicks. And recorded it himself so 
I think he's like the Chris Christopherson of pop in addition to be a great, being a great musician. Yeah. He, he did that with kiss. He wrote it for his bassist band Maserati. And then he's like, this is per, this is too good. I have to keep it. Yeah. Which I respect. I think I would have done that too. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to give give you this cake for your birthday, but instead I ate it. So you just got to respect that. Right. I would say, um, as far as the versatility question goes, yeah, the the first people that I thought of to uh, compare to him would be Dave Grohl for one, mm. obviously yeah. way different, um, and then Paul McCartney. Oh yeah, and he wrote more Beatles tunes than anybody else, and he played every instrument, and and obviously he doesn't have the singing. As, but I think I think those two are the ones that would be on top of that mountain together. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know as much about Dave Grohl, but I can definitely see like the Paul McCartney, you know, stuff when he got like real similar to Prince kind of when he got real into like um, trying to mimic new wave. And uh, I can't even remember the name of the album, but it was like post wings. I want to say maybe it was wings. Uh, anyway, like tracks that like wild tracks where you're just like no more drugs. Uh, but they were very <laughs> interesting to listen to. Yeah, I think he's incredibly versatile. I mean, you, his, his vocal style and what he could do with his falsetto certainly gave him great like versatility. And then I think he fundamentally understood like how he was a showman and really understood how to capture the general public's imagination while staying true to like a critic's critic when it came to funk and pop. Definitely. Did you ever see him live? No. Never okay. saw him. Did you? I did. How was I that? saw him on the musicology tour. It was fine. Yeah. No, it was spectacular. I've never seen anything <laughs> like it before. It was, and the guy can do absolutely everything. There's, there was no trick in the book. And, you know, I'm, I'm talking about 2003, 2004. So I definitely did not, didn't see the peak of the dancing, though right. the dancing was amazing when you see some, you know, music videos and, and things like that of his, and I wasn't getting the full vintage James Brown treatment on the dancing, right. but it was still, you know, world-class. And then on the guitar, yeah. Unlike anybody that you've ever seen. And of course, the singing and at a certain point, the, the whole rock god thing takes over and it's like, what can this guy not do? I mean, yeah. I mean, he repackaged himself as a symbol and opened a store that was just based <laughs> on symbols and his merchandise. Like that's who who else has done that? He was very effective at creating his own mythology, and it didn't end with Purple Rain. It was, it was something that kind of evolved. Uh, it started before the peak and, and went on after. I guess the the where I would usually start, and uh, I still have to ask you, is why did you choose Prince? Because I, I asked you to do the podcast. I'm so excited you said yes, and you said Prince. What did Prince mean to you? It, it's a matter of the um, kind of the nascent period in my life where I was starting to have my own taste in music. So my parents were really pretty um, big music fans. I grew up with a lot of vinyl in my home and my parents had really widely varied tastes. My mom liked a little bit more like of the modern music. She eventually had like, you know, Def Leppard and, you know, uh, Pour Some Sugar on Me when that came out in the 90s. Like she was the person that introduced me to that CD. Hell Yes. My dad was much more of like a ELO, um, Big Brother and the Holding Company, even like the harder like cream 
early Eric Clapton. And so I grew up listening to all of that stuff and definitely like wore out, you know, Sgt. Pepper and the White Album. And then as I got to be about eight or nine, um, it was right at the advent of MTV. I grew up in a very rural town, uh, so we didn't actually have cable, but my cousins did. So like the only way that I could watch music videos was through um, Turner Broadcasting, which would show music videos on Friday after the Atlanta Braves baseball games were done. So like I would tune in for that and try to like consume as much pop culture as I could. And Prince was just like, it was just as he was reaching like the purple rain portion of time where all these videos were now available for consumption. So you grew up in, in Georgia then? I'm sorry for interrupting. No, no. I grew up in Texas. Okay. So it's like this really small town in Texas called Sweeney. Um, but there was 13 channels and they were all like flip. And then Turner Broadcasting, TBS, was one of the channels that was on the 13 channel array. So that was like, it was weird. Like I got all the Atlanta Braves games and then the Astros would play on your standard local stations. I feel like a lot of the Prince videos, I mean, people had to have been upset to see when doves cry in a rural area of Texas. Like, were they ready to see Prince crawling out of the bathtub naked? (laughs) I don't know. I don't think I ever like had a deep conversation about it, but there was definitely some scandal. Um, The separate story. Like I, I wrote down all the lyrics to George Michael's um, uh, faith. Yes. And my seventh grade science teacher found it and I got busted. And like, there was a conversation with my parents about it. So there was, uh, that's the only proxy I have for how Prince would have been received, but yes, very conservative. (laughs) So not well, but it's smart for you to not draw extra attention to it. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. For me, I got to know him in a similar way. We had the MTV growing up, the MTV. Am I getting older or what? I just turned 40 last week. And for the first time ever, I called it the MTV. The MTV. Yeah. Uh, Everything's going to be the from now on. Uh, Also, if I'm going to continue to lean on my age, Batman, when Batman came out, I was, I guess, eight or nine, and it blew my mind, and he was the entire soundtrack. The Party Man museum scene where Jack Nicholson's dancing around and his thugs are just breaking everything. Yeah. And and he's dancing to Prince. And of course, I realized later that all of the purple motif going on in the movie was kind of, I don't know, an ode to the purple one. Yeah. And the videos that he made to support those songs were incredible. And then, of course, 1999. Yeah. In the year 1999, when that song came back. Yep. And, uh, and Prince squeezed it for all it was worth, which I would have as well. Of course. Yeah, but that was that was kind of what what brought me in. Oh, so wait, okay, so your initial like exposure to Prince was through like the Bat Dance album. Yes, I'm sure I had seen MTV before. I grew up having a brother that was ten years older than me. Okay, and he was a music freak, though he didn't he he wasn't super into Prince, but just having MTV on a lot in the house. Yeah. Uh, had me familiar with him, but things really went up several notches with Batman. Interesting. So did you then, are you going to get to this? Am I poaching like the... Go ahead. Okay. Um, Are you going to, like, did you go back and watch Purple Rain and listen to that album? Or like, how did that happen? That happened in college. What? (laughs) What a weird time to listen to Prince. (laughs) 
Listen, when uh, when Napster came out, which talk about something that Prince wouldn't appreciate, people ripping right. off his music. But when when all those, you know, initial, I almost called it a streaming service, but it was pre all that. Right. And uh, and you could just access all the music. I discovered kind of like the the quirkier stuff that I love a lot of it now. Beck, Prince, mm-hmm. David Bowie, and some of the stuff that that you wouldn't automatically fall into in high school. Interesting. Wow. Yeah. I'm always like, just from a, like related to Prince, but also just pop culture wise, like I've had arguments with people who they're like, Die Hard's not a great movie. And I'm like, but wait, (laughs) they're like all of these, there's a lot of similar movies. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Die Hard was the seminal movie. And then all those movies have copied them. So you're like looking at shitty copies when in fact Die Hard is the original product. So I was just curious, like how your, what your perspective on that would be. You should pull a Holly Gennaro McLean and punch those people <laughs> in the face. Cause they don't know what the hell they're talking about. I know they don't know what the hell they're talking about. Wow. Well now I was, I was in a good mood before you said that. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to bring down the vibe. So we're going to try to get through Prince's peak and, yes. uh, and we're going to fail miserably because we don't have a week and a half to do it. Right. But uh, anybody that's listening probably knows that he was extremely prolific. He put out 39 studio albums, four live albums, 17 video albums, 13 EPs and 13 internet albums so yeah he stayed busy what was your favorite prince album i mean i'm gonna say purple rain because that was the one that like i i wore out here the record the original that's right and you know what's funny is like now in vintage vinyl stores i feel like you go in and you, this record they're tr- trying to sell it like real precious for like 25 dollars or something so it's, it's hard to estimate how many songs this guy wrote because as you touched on before on top of all those albums he wrote so many songs for other people and and a lot of them were part of side projects so there were collaborations where they were just jam sessions and things like that i think that my favorite prince album is 1999 that's just front to back you you disapprove no no i'm just it's more like uh i don't know when your friend's like yeah i love dipping some fries in mayo and you're like you're not wrong but i can't get with that okay it's a very funky album a lot of sexual lyrics I don't know if that's why I like it. Yeah, but that's every album he wrote. That's true. Well, as he got older and he got into the whole Jehovah's Witness thing, he stopped cursing. But any any word out of Prince's mouth does sound sexual just because it's Prince. That's interesting. I'll have to take another listen to 1999. Yeah, give, give a listen to it. Uh, but it was obviously coming up. This is all he wanted to do. And he wouldn't do his homework. He said it didn't matter. He was going to be famous. And the guy knew. And yeah. I guess when you have that much talent, when you're touched like that, then you're just going to know. Um, I'm going to tell you guys, set it up by, by letting you all know where we were at in 1992 for 1982 from just a pop culture and worldly standpoint. But before I do that, I'm going to tell you a little bit about another podcast on the Wasted Robot Podcast Network. Yeah, baby. Whatever happened to predictability? There must be some magic clue inside these gentle walls. Sometimes you get a feeling like you need some kind of change. Each week on Talking Sit, Silas P. and a guest 
do a deep dive and raise up the sitcoms that raised us. Did Mr. Belvedere really sit on his balls? Why do people call him Uncle Joey when he wasn't related to the Tanners? And does anyone else remember Head of the Class? You remember Head of the Class, right? Oh, yeah. Yes. Find out each week on Talking Sit with Silas P. And, uh, and listen in for the episode that I did with him on Married with Children, a show that has aged very strangely. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so 1982, and if there's anything that I'm missing here, just jump in and help me out. But Time's Man of the Year that year was The Computer. They were very much looking forward. That was the year that Epcot opened, Graceland opened to the public, uh, the recession started in the United States, Reaganomics was kind of the, I guess, implemented as a solution to that. It's a good plan, I guess. Uh, from a pop culture standpoint, I look at 1982 as the start of 80s. That was when Madonna yeah, yeah. released her first album. That was the year when Thriller came out. That was the highest selling album of all time. That was the year that E.T. came out. Uh, that was the number one movie that year. Then Tootsie. So the top two movies uh, had main characters that dressed up as women. That always aged well. <laughs> yes. Well, E.T. dressing up as an old lady, actually, I would argue did age pretty well. Much yeah. better than Tootsie, I would say. Yeah. No, I would agree with you there. Uh, also, the year uh, that Fast Times at Ridgemont High was released, I consider that kind of the first modern teen movie. Yeah. Yeah. And it was the year that Eddie Murphy broke out. That was 48 Hours in SNL. So to me, that was like the 80s started in 1982. I think. And I think that Prince really exemplified a lot of the best of the 80s. You know, fashion and, and bringing in kind of the synth pop and the yes. R&B. And, and I, I think a lot of what he inspired could be a little bit cheesy, but his stuff was sort of elevated. Oh, yeah. Well, I think, too, like the the work he had done in the 70s uh, to kind of lead up to that point, like I do feel like the you know, the Purple Rain years and kind of more into the 80s was when he just was in his wheelhouse with connecting with like larger, more popular audiences. So it's interesting, like you kind of restating all of that stuff where like 1982 began. Each decade kind of has that weird kind of like overlap of like the hangover of the prior decade but yeah that that was an interesting that was definitely an interesting time in like american culture yeah i I, sort of an inflection point Mm -hmm. you know any year when you've got michael jackson's defining album prince really hitting brand new heights and and you know releasing some of the songs that he's definitely most known for and then madonna breaking loose i mean those are the three artists that i think you would say defined pop music in the 80s oh and no of doubt. course they all intersected a lot prince dated madonna briefly in 85 right. and his whole beef with michael jackson which we could get deep into i right. that's i went in the rabbit hole about that i find that so fascinating the prince's background he was born prince roger nelson june 7th 1958 minneapolis minnesota do you know anybody from minneapolis area uh, actually, my one of my sisters lives up there. She lives in St. Paul, but she's okay. not from there. So mm. like, are we talking origin story or are we just talking residency? Well, I guess either. One of my college roommates was from Minnesota yeah. and he 
he loves Prince and his friends that visited, they could all get going about Prince. I think it's like a moral obligation. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so his parents had been in a jazz ensemble called the Prince Roger Trio. And his mom said that he was always, if she took him into a department store when he was three or four, he would just find the music section and just run to it. And everything came to him naturally. He had a few piano lessons, guitar lessons, and he only wanted to play his own stuff. They couldn't get him to actually focus on learning. And he never learned how to read music. Uh, he did. Uh, he did teach himself a bunch of songs. The first song that he taught himself on the piano. Do you know this? No. Batman theme song. Wow. Nice and circular there. It's just, yeah. yeah, comes full circle. Yeah, absolutely. So he put a demo together when he was 16 in which he played all the instruments. Uh, he would overdub all of them together. They shopped it around. He signed with Warner Brothers when he was only 18 and they gave him full creative control. So he was the youngest artist that they ever did that for. So wise on them for recognizing the talent there yeah i would say from the very beginning he fell right into the tradition of front men with fantastic hair yes you know you had kind of like little richard elvis bowie mm -hmm. then prince <laughs> right yeah no doubt and i mean the 80s was such a, a hair decade i mean mm. if you think back to those seminal performers madonna Michael Jackson, Prince, all had signature hair that like later influenced all the terrible haircuts we got. <laughs> did you ever try to copy any of their hair? Did you do a Pat Benatar thing? I don't think I did an exact Pat Benatar, but like there was um there was a period where I had like the uh the signature 80s mullet, I'll say. Like a kind of like soft curly mullet Fantastic. before yeah, before a lot of hairspray came into the scene. But Prince's first album for You was released in 1978. It hit 163 on the billboard. So, I mean, not a flop, but but didn't light the world on fire. But he released his first single, Soft and Wet. Such a party starter. Yes. That's a jam. And a lot of the early stuff, the best of the early stuff, I feel like is in that vein. I feel like that synth intro has been like used in some sort of commercial purpose. I, but I, yeah, I can't place it, but it just has like that some sort of like hook in it. Reminds if me it of hasn't, else. it should. Yeah. But I don't think it's easy to, uh, to get the rights from, from that camp. No, no. They might be coming after us for this podcast. <laughs> I, I'm going to take you down with me too, if that happens. Oh, okay. That's fine. <laughs> I mean, my massive estate can handle any sort of legal suit that they might bring. <laughs> Uh, the next album was Dirty Mind, and uh, and that one, the first thing I think of is the uh, the album cover. It had the uh, black bikini underwear with the trench coat. Oh yeah, the, the trench coat wide open, and uh, and the cowboy jacket there. And um, it wasn't a trench coat; I think it was a cowboy jacket actually. And it had the band yes, and the bandana around mm -hmm. his neck. Very aggressive. Yeah, it was very hustler. Yes. And that was his thing, apparently, going on tour in those early days. He would wear just the bikini briefs. And that sometimes he'd get pelted with trash because back then he was still opening up for people. Right. And uh, that's... 
I think opening up for Rick James, that's what he was doing because he yeah. toured opening for Rick James and uh, he had to hire a band because he was still playing all the instruments on all of his albums, like 27 instruments or something. I, I was uh, just in, in preparation for this. I was reading about in um, on those that those early stages of his tour before he really uh, rose to fame. And when he was opening for Rick James, people would throw like bottles and food at him and so he after a couple of tough nights he just got to the point to where he would like um kind of like coquettishly smile and point to people in the audience after they did it and just like try to like make eye contact with them to make it like even more awkward after they threw stuff at him that's probably a really good strategy just remind people that you're a human being and make a little connection with them yeah it's like it's hard to throw trash at somebody that like you've made eye contact with i know in all my years of throwing trash at people that's what i've found yeah i mean that's the pull quote right there it's really hard to <laughs> throw trash at people you've made a human connection with i hope that that's the takeaway from this conversation yep don't sue us we're, we're really <laughs> making humanity better by these quips Right. Uh, he had his first SNL performance in 81. He released the album Controversy that year. He played three dates opening up for the Rolling Stones, and he was forced off stage in L.A. when audience members were throwing trash at him. So this is just a, a theme for the early part of his career. But it got better. Uh, that, that same year, he formed a side project called The Time with yeah. Morris Day singing. And, uh, and Prince did most of the instrumentation, backing vocals. Their most favorite, their most famous song is one that I am uh, very fond of. I caught myself lip syncing along and I was a little bit embarrassed. And then I looked and noticed that you were doing the same thing. That O-E-O-E-O, it's like... It's so you know, infectious. You can't not do it when that song plays. What is your favorite Prince song that he wrote and gave away to somebody else? I mean, nothing compares to you. I mean, that... Well, technically, that was a cover. It counts. Of course yeah. it counts. But they he did release it in 85. Good call. No, I mean, that man, wasn't... That's a, that's 100%. That song is killer. Yeah. It's an outstanding I, tune, especially the way that she sings it. Yes. Yeah. I think it's one of those things where like, um, like in the comedy world, like a really good writer can write for a certain player in mm. the way that like best calls upon their, their attributes. And I know, uh, you know, it might not have been written for her, but I certainly do think it, it works well for her. I mean, I guess if I'm going to say uh, Manic Monday. Right. I 100% agree. First on the Sinead O'Connor point with yeah. uh, nothing compares to you i the way she reimagined it i think is what made it interesting she deserves yeah. some credit because it was a breakup song and she turned into like the song about loss and i think she had lost her mother and it's one of those songs that really tugs at the heartstrings the way that that she sings it but manic monday is so by so far the answer for me yeah. i that's a perfect pop song so I didn't know the background here. I guess he knew Susanna Hoffs and like this whole crew of people. And so he just penned it for her. Right. He went to an early Bangles show and uh -huh. sent them a few songs. They didn't know him that well. It was just, he probably had a crush on her like anybody yeah. else that's ever looked at Susanna Hoffs. Yeah. 
and uh, and that was their first big hit. It went up to number two. We were talking about Paul McCartney before. To me, I I hear this song and it feels like a Beatles level mm-hmm. type of just perfect pop writing day in the life. Yeah, yeah. It's been getting a lot of airplay because my kids discovered it and I had to put it on my kids playlist. Oh, nice. It's hard to turn that song off. It's so no, I good. Know. I was really looking forward to the the middle part uh, where it kind of changes tempo and gets a little more frenetic. But I ruined it. No, you ruined it, John. So <laughs> here we are. Damn it. All right. Well, I am, uh, I am sorry. Apparently Prince uh, challenged himself to write two songs a day. I didn't know that. I knew that he wrote one song per day and like his estate has all these songs in a vault um, and I guess the sound engineer that he worked with was like, he just tossed out like these hits that never were put on albums. Like they're all just living there under his estate and they're not released. Wow. I'm sure that the flow is going to start. And by the way, everything or 90% of what I have learned over the last couple of weeks has just been on internet deep dives. Yeah. So Hopefully, hopefully this podcast will be popular enough that there will be a mob to correct me (laughs) (laughs) or I just get to lie to my friend. (laughs) Yeah. At the point in which you reach like fans that think they own the show, then that's where you've reached really like the pinnacle of success. That's what we're going for. Yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, when you're, you're, you're in uh, 2020 and you're talking about the early eighties, the fans will come. They will. They've got nothing else to do except for, you know, gain weight as their metabolism deteriorates and then yell down the stairs to their children. Uh, Good times. So October 82 is when Prince released 1999, my favorite album of his. And to me, kind of where he started jumping up to just the next level of crazy A++ level fame. Uh, The following month, November of 82 is when Thriller came out. And it just kind of, it went like that forever. Those two went back and forth. Obviously, Michael Jackson wasn't as prolific, but I think that's when the rivalry was foisted upon them by the rest of society, just to have two insanely talented guys that were both, you know, slight and they were dancers and they were probably... Um, the very short list of black people that MTV would play their videos. Oh, yeah. So um, barriers were certainly broken there. Um, it was a double LP, over 6 million albums sold worldwide. It was the fifth highest selling album of 83. That's when it did most of its damage. And, uh, of course, we talked before about the song 1999. I was It was a protest song about nuclear proliferation, which I did not know until I did the research. Did you? No, I did not. But that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, it does sound like he's describing kind of a nuclear fallout thing, but there was a lot of concerns about 1999 and what was going to happen, whether there was going to be like an apocalyptic type of, but that's what what he was talking about. I wonder if people that are listening are like, why don't you just play Prince and maybe not talk? 
<laughs> the other big hit from that album was Little Red Corvette. Yes. Uh, fantastic song. Great little guitar riff in there. And when I saw him live, he did it acoustic, which really worked. Wow. Yeah, when you were playing Manic Monday, that piece where like I was kissing Valentino near a crystal blue Italian stream. There's something about that fragment of lyric that is so reminiscent of the way that he wrote Little Red Corvette because there's like specificity in it and like some sort of pattern that's like packed together in that that little lyrical blurb or something. Yeah, no, definitely. Good call. Good call. He uh, we all have patterns. Even even geniuses like Prince. I mean, of course, his patterns are brilliant. Right. Yeah. I, th- those first two videos were live performances. He didn't get into. He didn't jump in with both feet with the with the videos the way that Michael Jackson did. Yeah. And I was just talking about Thriller. Obviously, everybody knows Beat It and Thriller, and all of his early videos were, you know, directed by John Landis and their pieces of art. These showed him in concert, and in certain ways were even better because I see those videos like, wow, I want to see Prince live right now. Yeah. Yeah. Just watch him dance around. Yeah. I mean, he's like you said, like um, the he's such a showman. And I think when he came on the scene, you know, you've got Bowie, you've got Mick Jagger, you've got James Brown. And to some extent, like in a shorter time frame, like Rick James, kind of the history of of funk. Uh, but he kind of brought everything together in like a um, a, a package that like, you know, the youth of the 80s was really ready to consume. Much to parents' frustrations, I'll, we should talk about Tipper Gore later. Oh yeah, we'll we'll get into the uh, the Tipper Gore thing, but yeah, no, he he certainly oozed sex in any time that you saw him, particularly on stage, and he he turned the guitar, which has always been used as a phallic thing, but of course, I think he's t- he took it a few steps further than most people along those lines. And his lyrics were extremely sexual. If you listen on that album to DMSR and Lady Cab Driver, uh, I love that album. It's very funky. It's a lot of fun. I, you're, you're going to tell me what you think when you give it another spin. Yeah. No, I definitely will. We'll circle yeah. back. We'll have a follow-up podcast. <laughs> follow-up pod? All yeah. right, good. Please schedule follow-up podcast for two weeks after this. <laughs> All right. Uh, so a story that I read is in 1983, Stevie Nicks first heard the song Little Red Corvette. She was inspired and she went home and wrote Stand Back that day. And mm. when she went to record it, she called Prince to tell him, He showed up at the studio 20 minutes later to jam on the keyboard. She said she's never seen playing like that. She could have brought two pianists, two pianists in to try to duplicate it. They wouldn't have matched what he just did on the keyboard when he was just messing around. And then he left. He's just like a a studio ghost. Yeah. It's like a a Bill Murray (laughs) like music story. Right. Right. Just passing through. That's so funny. I mean, stand back is um a, a huge Fleetwood Mac and the Stevie Nicks fan. So like that album was really, I think the the first foray into the fans, like stylistically, like her standing singing and then her fans in her face. Ah. And her hair blowing. I don't know. Interesting. Yeah. 
Yeah, and all inspired by Little Red Corvette. You can see there there is some DNA of those two songs that are shared, I think. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, without it veering into ripoff territory no. at all, but... No, no, just more like, you know, the good juice of two artists, like, being in proximity with one another. So, like, they both level up. Mm-hmm, for sure. All right, so the next album, I think most people have probably heard of. It's called Purple Rain. Uh, before this might we be a get new one that, to some of your new, fans. It's a new one. The kids are going to love it. <laughs> before we talk about it we're going to take a quick break before we talk about purple rain i wanted to share with you what was going on this week today it is august 12th this week in 1984 the top six movies this week and purple rain had come out uh in july Mm -hmm. the top six movies were number one red dawn Oh. Number two, Ghostbusters. Number three, Purple Rain. Yes. Number four, Revenge of the Nerds. Number five, Karate Kid, which my kids are watching upstairs as as we speak. And number six, Gremlins. What? Yes. Wait, those had all been released in the same week? No, those were... But back then, movies would stay in the theater for like six, eight months at a time. Right, right. Those were the top six movies this week in 1984. And they didn't have a pandemic. That is incredible. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I feel you kept naming them off and I was like, oh, there's going to be like some sandbagger, you know, it's like a (laughs) shit movie of that assortment you know but it just kept going like you you were like red dawn i was like yep yep it's a big one and then ghostbusters gremlins karate kid i mean Mm -hmm. like what else rambo no rambo no rambo i should have i should have written down the full top 10 because i'm sure there was one forgettable movie in the mix there Sure, but i just thought that was uncanny yeah officer and and a gentleman or some crap movie like that that has been left Officer and a Gentleman was one of the top five grossing movies of 82, I want to say. Because when I looked that up and trying to get my arms around where we were then, because yeah. Rocky Three was was high up there, Officer and a Gentleman. In 82? Yes. Rocky Three. Yes. America's insatiable. I can't believe it was that early. But I believe <laughs> your facts. I'm just saying, like, I it's like more like, yeah, keep going. I'm sorry. No. No, it's fine. I, th- I thought you were going to insult Rocky, which just isn't going to fly. Not, on, oh, not right. on any podcast hosted by me. I need to remember my place, John. <laughs> I'm going to talk to you the way men spoke to women in 1982. <laughs> <laughs> in Philadelphia, no less. In, Philadelphia, in South Philadelphia. Yeah. There's an extra helping of getting straight to the point. On it. <laughs> right. uh, so, Purple Rain was... Obviously, uh, a movie, it, it grossed $72 million, uh, against a budget of $7.2 million. Prince contributed the entire soundtrack, even the yeah. songs in which Prince wasn't singing. He wrote those songs, which is kind of ironic because not only did he have the competitive element in the movie uh, where his character, the kid, which is obviously, a, you know, a... a runs very close to the real life Prince and Mars Day in the time. So mm-hmm. they're competitive, but he actually wrote 
all of the times music and then Apollonia six, their own song in it. Um, but he deserves a lot of the credit. He's, he was the star of the movie. Warner brothers initially suggested John Travolta for the part. Did you know that? I did not know that. Think the movie would have been different. Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. All of the music took place at the legendary First Avenue nightclub in Minneapolis. They had to pay the club 100000 uh, to stay closed for 25 days of filming. Um, and that place seemed awesome. The, the movie opened with a live version of Let's Go Crazy. And I think for even a casual Prince fan, the adrenaline just builds as you know we the dearly beloved yeah and then the yeah. song just builds and just gets so much adrenaline by the end of the song he's on top of the keyboard doing the guitar solo and it's like how how do you even continue a movie from here? You're just on such a high. Right. And then after that, Morris Day in the Time gets up and does Jungle Love. Their performance is, I don't know, 97% as good. It's still fantastic. And it's all I'm thinking is like, what would it have been like to actually be at the club that night and see these two guys yeah. or these two bands? It's so cool. I don't think I was allowed to watch Purple Rain when it first came out because I was so young, but, uh, that, that whole like album and like looking back on the like sheer balls of him being like, yeah, I'm renewing my contract and you're going to let me make a feature film. Yeah. I mean, they were kind of like, no, not, no, we're not gonna. And he was like, yeah, you are. <laughs> so they, I mean, they did it. They clearly weren't a hundred percent confident because they pitched Travolta sure. and that didn't pan out for whatever reason. But I, do you think of Prince as a good actor? Oh, mm, I don't know. No. You know, what's fascinating when you watch the movie, you don't give him credit for uh, the live performance part. Whenever you watch a music movie right. and it's, you know, someone's playing the front man of a band. It's Bradley right. Cooper up there as Jackson Maine. Oh, yeah. You're like, whoa, what an actor. I'm really believing this. Prince is great at that, but you can't give him credit because it's what he does. But right. <laughs> the live performance parts are great. Another part, I, I agree. I don't, I don't love his acting, but everything that he does at the club is very believable to me. When he's nervous before getting on stage... Yeah, I that's totally he totally sells that. And I think that that's how I am doing comedy. I'm not a good pre-show hang. <laughs> I'm good afterwards, like beforehand. I'm going to pretend to like be listening to you, but I'm in my head. I'm not as bad as the kid. He's very believable with with the way he is and just the the tension and the nerves and everything else. Yeah, I mean, I. I've known a lot of actors, especially like temperamental musicians or artists or whatever. And like pre-show, same, like they'll, you know, they'll phone it in in terms of personal interactions, but they're really like pretty freaked out. I would also say that the scene with his father in the basement 
when you know they're it's really the only time in the movie where the two of them speak and his father's abusive and it's a really dark storyline in the movie that part i think is acting he really nailed it too i mean maybe just working with clarence williams kind of just raised his game a little obviously clarence williams is the best actor in that movie by about 50 miles (laughs) (laughs) right Uh, have you considered apollonia's performance Apollonia's performance, she's gorgeous. My yes. God. Um, but no, outside of that, <laughs> sure. I don't know what other positive things to say about her performance. Yeah. There no. was mm-hmm, sorry. No, no, go ahead. The um there's some interesting lines of dialogue in it. First of all, I love how much the character's Prince. He's poor, but he dresses like Prince. <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine someone walking around in heels and 15 scarves and doesn't seem to have nickels to rub together, but, you know. But you're going to look right. Print. Yeah. He, and he looks good in the movie. Um, he told Apollonia to purify yourself in the waters of Lake Minnetonka, <laughs> which went on, you know, a lot of unintentional comedy and, um, you know, went on to be a classic line. Another line, your lips would make a lollipop too happy. The dialogue of the movie is not great. There's a lot to unpack there too. I mean, like if you have the brain capacity for it. I don't know if there's much to unpack. (laughs) (laughs) I'm trying to give some gravitas to the lines, John. Sure. I'm sorry. Too happy. I mean, I think we all know what it means. We know what it means. Sure. Tipper would have an opinion. Oh, I think she did. Mm -hmm. Well, Another thing with that movie, and you see it in some, back in his early days, he didn't do many interviews. He right. loosened up as the years went on, and he showed his personality in the movie a little bit. He does a lot of mugging, and he's an extremely good-looking guy. Yes, but there there's also a lot of Derek Zoolander kind of faces <laughs> that happen just when he's like being charming and like letting you know how cute he is. Yeah, well, I mean, if you do. Like you're like, hey, I need a feature film for my ego. You're probably going to have some some shots that are really like catching John as in, in his best light, you know? Yeah, that's that's fair. So you're saying a movie that's basically <clears throat> made to create his own mythology might have some vanity to it. I, you know what? I'm going to go out on a limb, and I'm going to answer that in the affirmative. So when I was watching this. I'm sorry for, to bring up my kids again. No, it's great. Uh, my kids walked in during the purple rain scene. <laughs> and man, it's so emotional because in the movie, he just, his dad had just committed suicide and he's just had a rough go of it. And that's really good acting too before the song starts. And you're just wondering, you're looking at him and he's breathing and he's, it it seems like he's trying to figure out how he's even going to be able to gather himself and perform. And then he says that he's going to do the Wendy and Lisa song after he's been telling them for the past hour and a half that nobody cares about their music. So it's like, it's a big moment for him. It's a big moment for them. Maybe I got swept up. I was getting emotional. And then my kids walked in. I was like, wait, I got to watch this. (laughs) We watched Purple Rain. And by the the middle of the song, the arms are swaying back and forth. Like everybody in the audience. And by the time the song ended, it was just an ovation in the Cobble House. I mean, I'm glad that your children have 
great artistic taste and they can see when genius is before them because purple that song does compel you to put your hands up and wave them back and forth and if you've got a lighter like if there was a little toddler like fisher price lighter they should have had that as well if i was a better father they would have had a lighter that's on me put it on the list Have you seen a movie where more people wear sunglasses inside? <laughs> Not since Studio 54. <laughs> There's a lot of guys. It's a very, the, the styles really let you know what the era was. It was very androgynous in that club and a lot of sunglasses inside. Yeah. It worked. And as you touched it, so the, the album sold 25 million copies worldwide. Yep. Um, the... When Doves Cry was part of the album, when that video came out, we talked about it a little bit before, where it's very sexual. And um, I think that got a lot of people upset. The big one was Darling Nikki. Mm -hmm. And apparently Tipper Gore came home to her daughter listening to it. And she lost her shit and decided that we need parental advisory stickers. And there it was born. She went on a rampage. Tipper was fired up and had, you know, something to talk about as a second lady, I guess. And so, uh, yeah, that's where it comes from. Was she the second lady yet? No. Well, she was. Oh, well, did, did it take that long? Yes, it, it was later. Oh, yeah. I guess she wouldn't have been the vice president's. Till like Al Gore wouldn't have been in. Yeah. Right, but I think it was maybe early 90s, but obviously that was kind of what raised her her profile. Yeah. But Tipper Gore was like the original buzzkill. (laughs) (laughs) Like, if you mention the name Tipper Gore, if people even know what that name means, like, oh, that's that chick that decided that people couldn't listen to cool music anymore. Right, (laughs) right. the kids couldn't. Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. What a narc. Damn it, Tipper. (laughs) Tipper ruins everything. It's a fun name to bitch at, too. It is. It really is. I mean, it's like, yeah. Uh, We would have been able to get this album if it wasn't for Tipper. (laughs) Tipper Gore, man. Uh, So, obviously, this was huge. And it it took it knocked off Ghostbusters from the number one spot. Ghostbusters retook it the next week. But when it came out, it, it unseated Ghostbusters. The album or just Purple Rain, the track or When Doves Cry? Oh, I'm sorry, the movie. When the movie, the movie. came out. Oh, the movie. Okay. Yes. Wow. Oh, the song. <laughs> we ain't afraid of no ghost. No, it, it, the movie was. It was, was huge. Uh, I mean, yeah. Let's it, Separate conversation. Sure. Song. Yeah. So uh, obviously High Watermark. The next album was Around the World in a Day. It topped the charts for three weeks, but the reviews weren't as good. Yep. And uh, and Prince, he was discouraged. He had to be convinced to release Raspberry Beret. And he said he wasn't going to tour anymore. And he didn't tour for two years. The, the artist psyche is a fragile thing. Yeah. You can't really hide your shine when you're Prince. So that's our loss. We should have done better. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that he was convinced to release music because Raspberry Beret is a fantastic song. Oh, no question. I mean, what I love about Raspberry Beret and what I love about his songwriting generally, 
um, is the amount of like detail that gives you like a visual, like a visual tapestry as you're listening to it, you know? It's she walked in through the outdoor is such like a character building statement about who she is. Yeah, I and and that's why to me in a lot of ways it's it's reminiscent of some of the better Beatles songs. Yeah, you know it's not there are the abstract elements like Purple Rain is a very abstract song. I mm-hmm. I really can't put my finger on exactly what he's talking about. Yeah, but the songs that lyrically I enjoy the most it has that imagery and it tells you the stories. Yeah. Yeah, now I'm I'm trying to. It was like a you know like a fun night where you just kind of vote by consensus how to map like Be- Beatles songs and to their equivalent in in Prince tracks, you know. Well, I, speaking of which, the next album after that was Parade, and to me, that's kind of like the experimental Sgt. Pepper's type of album. I don't you think know. I. Tell me more. I know that you've researched it. <laughs> don't give me too much credit um it was a soundtrack to the movie under the cherry moon yes yes which he starred in and directed he directed this one right. and that was a black and white and i think that it took place in the 40s maybe uh, i never saw it and it got terrible reviews he got razzies for it i believe wow um, but it did include the song kiss Yes. Which, as I said before, he had written it for his then bassist, Brown Mark, and his band, Maserati. And then he's like, now nah, I'm going to have to keep this one. I like that the opening lyrics to the song are you don't have to be beautiful. And in the video, he shows up looking so beautiful. <laughs> right. With some, you know, clearly middle of the road dancers. So I think he stayed true. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh, so my, my next question for you is Prince versus Michael Jackson. Who you got? I'm, I'm really bad at these questions because I'm always like, but also... Um, <laughs> Uh, Michael Jackson. I think that that would probably be uh, the consensus all with Michael Jackson. I think I would probably go with Prince knowing that I was in the minority on it. The case for Prince would just be how prolific he was. Michael Jackson, he would collaborate with all the super producers and Prince did everything himself and he would pump out an album or two a year and he would decide to promote some and not promote others and, you know, experiment in all these different ways. And Michael Jackson was like, each song has to be perfect as perfect as it could possibly be. And also Prince has to get points for playing every instrument and being one of the greatest guitarists ever. And actually kind of treating it like it's a secondary thing. He didn't even, a lot of people, I, I think, don't, didn't even realize that he played the guitar, let alone the fact that he was Jimi Hendrix with the guitar. No, those are, I think those are all good points. I like that you laid it out like the case for Prince, like we were like in a Southern <laughs> courtroom drama. <laughs> Your Honor, the case for Prince. I've got more evidence, Your Honor. <laughs> yeah. I'll rest my case. He had a better concert movie. He did the sign of the times, yeah, uh, which is probably his most critically acclaimed album too. Um, and he had the better Super Bowl halftime performance. Oh, oh, okay. The he did the 2007 one in the pouring rain. Yes, I remember that. 
He did Let's Committed. Go Crazy, All yes. on the Watchtower, Best of You, that, that Foo Fighters song, and Purple Rain in the Rain. The whole Had to thing. do, yeah. Yeah, it's just, it was really good performance. So much fun. I mean, look, I'm not going to come on a show about Prince and argue with you about how Prince is secondary <laughs> to Michael Jackson, because... As they say in Texas, you got to dance with who brung you. So I agree. Prince is phenomenal. 100%. And the Foo Fighters had covered Darling Nikki mm. and Prince was offended. So he, I guess he decided, let's do Best of You, which I, I guess just to show like, look, I'm going to show the whole world that I can make your song sound amazing <laughs> if it comes from me. <laughs> it's a strange thing to be offended about because seeing Prince live, he does covers. Yeah. <laughs> Are you a fan of the album Sign of the Times? Yeah, I was trying to remember that later stuff. Um, I would know more tracks on that one than I would like the whole album. My favorite track on that one is Starfish and Coffee. It was sent for the foul on the line to, to teach Miss Kathleen. Was Kevin, then came losing. Third in line was me. All of us were ordinary. Good song. Yeah, when did that come out? Sign of the Times. 87. 87. Yeah. Gosh, it feels so much like a predecessor to like XTC and all of that kind of like um, rehash psychedelia that like came later in the 80s and mm-hmm. the early 90s. Uh, that's a good song. I need, so, I'm, I clearly have to, gonna have to go back and visit it. Apparently, the story behind it was his then fiance was telling him about when he when she was younger, and that was the, uh, a classmate of hers was Cynthia Rose, who he's talking about in the song, yeah. and she had some, um, you know, disabilities for lack of a better word, she, yeah. and she was a little bit, you know, delayed in some ways. And if you told, if you asked her any stories, she was this colorful character and most people kind of ignored her but if you would actually care to forge a relationship she was a really sweet little girl and if you asked her what she had for breakfast she would say um starfish and pp and <laughs> apparently everything in the song is accurate but he changed it to starfish and coffee yeah uh i can see why story. it just you know it's an improvement yeah, I mean, I don't know that that's going to chart at Starfish and PP, but it, <laughs> Prince is Prince, so who knows? Maybe he should have gone for it. He could have made it happen. Yeah. So to get back to the Michael Jackson thing, yes. and maybe I, I maybe you're indulging me, but I find it interesting. Uh, do you know anything about the story behind their feud? I know a little bit, but I am sure there's more details to be uncovered. I know about the James Brown show where they mm. were both put on stage. Um, well, that's kind of, so let's start with that. Yeah. Okay. Let's springboard from there. So in 83 at a concert in LA, James Brown was performing. He invited Michael Jackson on stage. If you will, let's give another standing ovation for a young man sitting behind you that you have no idea who's an audience. Michael Jackson, no Michael Jackson.
pretty incredible. Uh, yeah. When he started dancing, I just got this big shit eating grin on my face. Like I was like 10 years old again, watching him dance. I, Michael Jackson, 1983, you really can't do much better from a voice and dancing standpoint. Is it too late for me to change my answer? No, you're, <laughs> you've already just... presented your case. Case closed, <laughs> Mr. Cobble. So he did his crazy patented spin move and then he moonwalked and just the ultimate entertainer. And, and he did he the shuffle. Out. He like the yes. kind of like James Brown mm-hmm. S shuffle where he's like on, up on his like uh, balls of his feet. Uh, allegedly, he whispered in James Brown's ear when they hugged, call Prince up. I dare him to follow me. What? This is according to Quincy Jones. This is the legend that he laid out. So next, because Prince was in the audience and didn't know he was going to be called up, he didn't do his best guitar work in that moment. No, no. And then he took off his shirt and strutted around and he did some really cool mic work. Mm -hmm. And then he tried to get the crowd to clap and they weren't having it, which I put a lot of the blame on him because he gave them a pretty difficult clapping cadence. And that's just a lot to ask of a crowd. Yep. It's a lot to ask of me. I know that. And then he's exiting the stage and there's a prop lamppost mm-hmm. and he thought he was going to lean on it and he pulled the whole thing down and he fell into the crowd. This is right after Michael Jackson's amazing show stopping minute long. He kept it tight. <laughs> he knew what his he job was going to be. something a little bit more. Right. So... Prince is apparently mortified after this. He goes out to his his limo and decides that he is going to run Michael Jackson down when he comes out of the show. This is according to Quincy Jones. And in he his limo. So he's going to sit in the back and it'll be like, driver, run driver, over Michael Jackson. murder Michael Jackson. All right. And he did. And that was how Michael Jackson, he clearly didn't do that. But, <laughs> uh, but there was... Certainly some animosity. Uh, Quincy Jones got them to work together a few times over the years. He turned down We Are the World, which Michael Jackson had written. And Prince decided to do his own thing to try to raise some money and awareness. I think he did his own song. I um, Am the World. (laughs) Prince wrote I Am the World. It was a huge hit in the UK for about, you know, six weeks. You guys need to look that one up. Listen to 1999. <laughs> Listen to I Am the World. Yep. Uh, he also turned down uh, in an invitation to collaborate on the song Bad. Oh, yeah. He was yeah. going to be the Wesley Snipes role in the sure. video, but he didn't like the idea that the opening lyric was, Your butt is mine. Oh, yeah. Like, which I get that. I don't, I actually, I don't fully, I get it, but it's a little bit silly. Yeah. I mean, it, it, I think you come into it with a perspective that will color whether or not you are game for it or not. And then in 2006, during Prince's residency in Vegas, he invited Michael Jackson to a show and Prince went out into the crowd and he was playing bass at the time and started playing the bass really loud and aggressively in Michael Jackson's face when he was in the crowd. And that was apparently not uh, <laughs> appreciated. I don't think it was intended to be appreciated. But, and, and maybe I'm just scratching the surface. Is there anything else that I'm missing? Not that I know of. I mean, when you tell me these stories and you know, you look at the lives of Michael Jackson and, and Prince, 
you know, the, a unifying, not only their musicianship and their like incredible talent, but a unifying kind of um, psychosis that existed in them is like having a terrible fraught relationship with their dad, mm. you know, and it's like, how did that turn out with one versus the other? Uh, I don't know. Human nature has the answer, but that's weird that like it kind of manifested with Prince with this like need to be, you know, number one or whatever. I didn't know the bass thing about playing it really aggressively in his face, you know, and if you're going to play any instrument that is the ultimate other than like bringing like a big, maybe like a timpani or like a snare down in front of someone's face, like the bass is the best you can get from the rhythm section that's portable. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, no, and that's a good point about them sharing, uh, you know, that, that similarity about their father in addition to the more obvious ones about otherworldly levels of fame and yeah. talent. Yeah. I mean, it's like, what would the world have been like if they were buddies? Like if they could have worked through their stuff? Well, and, and again, I'm, I'm sure that there was mutual admiration. And uh, according to what I read, Prince was depressed for a week or so and shot himself in when, when Michael Jackson died. Um, I, I think there was probably a healthy rivalry, but maybe some unhealthy moments. Yeah. Um, but honestly, I felt for Prince when I was watching the James Brown clip. And anybody that's listening, you need to look that up because it's just yeah. fascinating. But boy, if there's somebody that you're not going to follow, and I've had, I've struggled to follow people on stage and I never followed, I don't know what the comedy version of following Michael Jackson is, but like I never had to follow Eddie Murphy. Yeah. Stage right, right. And, and then just bomb. That's, that couldn't have been a, a good feeling for him. Yeah, no, and you, um, as it unfolds, you know, there's a little bit of like, uh, there's a little bit of soap opera to it, you know, because there's the big reveal that he's in the audience, then he comes forward, and what I thought was so interesting is, I don't know if this is the time, but like, he's in full Michael Jackson regalia in the middle of the crowd, just like hanging amidst all the other plebs that have bought the shitty standing tickets, you know what I mean? Like, these days, he would be like in some sort of like super box sealed off from everyone else that's a really good point because in 1983 he is the biggest star in the world yeah right in the middle with everyone and certainly not hiding the fact that he's michael jackson no he looks in, about as michael jackson as michael jackson's ever looked yeah he's in the coat he's got the glasses back to the sunglasses he's wearing the sunglasses <laughs> it's all signature hair you know there's no question that that's michael jackson and then maybe Prince was just attending as a fan. I don't know. Like now I'm looking through this, like, look at this as like Prince. Like it was a setup. Michael Jackson came up and then Michael Jackson was like, oh, BT dub. You know, it's like you and I go to a show or something. They're like, hey, by the way, John's in the audience. You should get him up here for a type five. <laughs> and you're being called from the back of the room, like awkwardly. And you're like, come up and you're like, I, I don't know. I got nothing. And then you immediately go to the jokes that work or, you know, in improv parlance, it would be like, you start bringing up the dirty jokes right away. Cause you got nothing else. And I felt him when he went bare chested and tried to just do some bits to redeem himself. Yes. Yeah. No. And that's, that's exactly what it was. It's like, well, yeah. I know how to be sexy. I know how to throw a microphone around, but that's kind of the garnishes. That's not really the entree. Right. And what he tried to serve them up front didn't work. Yeah. And then, 
Yeah, I, I think it in a certain sick way, there is the thing where you look at it, it's like, well, I guess I I know that I have floundered on stage. That's Prince floundering on stage. Right. But also it's the difference between at this point, Michael Jackson, I guess, had been doing it for, I don't know, over 10 years. Yeah. Because he was Since a child was five. prodigy. Yeah. And Prince, he was five years in and a genius. But, you know, that level of experience, I think, showed there. Yeah. No, it was interesting because he almost like, um, I was like, okay, is this drugs or is it just him like, like in like this kind of trying to be Laurie Anderson in the middle of like a funk show, you know, because it was some creative choices that I would not have made, but you know, respect. Respect. So let's, let's go to a couple categories. What would you say was his greatest moment? Uh, And the whole life of Prince? Over the course of his peak, but you know what, if it falls outside of the peak, even better. Oh gosh. I mean, strictly from my fandom, I don't pretend to hold forth that this was like a musical pinnacle, but when you played kiss and I know it was like, you know, he did his live shows as a lot of the videos um, for his bigger hits early on, but that video is like, it, it's part of my musical DNA. And when you see it and it's like, you know, it's like this like Robert Palmer vibe of like women dancing in silhouette and him being like really weird. Um, that video, like the combination of the visuals and the song, I, I just think is, inc- but now, now that I'm saying that I'm getting to the end of my argument and I, like my kid does every night when like I get almost at the end of the song, she's like, that's not the song I wanted. I wanted a different one. <laughs> I I'm oh, thinking I know of, that move well. Yeah. I'm thinking of like, um, like raspberry beret i don't know it's hard i i'm not a good person to ask certain questions of i guess john (laughs) i'm sorry i asked too much well i'm going to give a less specific answer to me it's purple rain it's purple rain he was the star of the movie and he put out his most successful album and to me that's just his his commercial appeal apex and Just when I think the most people realized, came to the conclusion, like, oh, this guy's a genius. And it certainly didn't help that it was just a myth-making movie. Like, this is me in Minneapolis, you know, as a kid, breaking out just with undeniable talent. Yeah. I I mean, I respect that call. I don't think you're wrong at all. Um, Certainly Purple Rain, the album, was like the kind of breakthrough uh for him in in my eyes but yeah i i think that the boldness of doing that movie with the album at the point in which you laid out in the kind of the pop culture genesis and what was going on with like mtv kind of being in a nascent stage and that album coming out was yeah it was that was a pretty uh not only bold move but like assertive musically yeah. And he used MTV well. He, I, I, Where would you rank him amongst the 80s sexual icons? Oh. And did any, did any male artist use their sexuality like him? No. I mean, doesn't he have a video? I'm thinking of it now. He has a video where, like, he lays down on the ground and, like, humps the ground in rhythm to some song he sings 
when doves it might cry. Be kids. Oh, it might be when doves cry. Yeah. Well, you know, he. There was a lot of on the ground action in both of those videos. <laughs> 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 he was a very sexual being, Prince. If you could just go through the the, the specific scenes, John, and we can lay it out in kind of <laughs> chronological with order. My, with my sexy voice, I'll, tell, <laughs> I'll read it off to you. Um, what would you consider to be his uh, his biggest flex? Mm. When And I'm not as hip. Like when you say flex means like... Just a bold, bold decision. Oh, gosh. I'll go I mean, with mine. Yeah, go with yours. Let me let me hear. Okay, it. well I'll tell you, deciding that he's a movie director, and directing Under the Cherry Moon, directing yeah. Graffiti Bridge, and just like he just he 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 harnessed it all for Purple Rain. He didn't direct that one, but he's like, screw it, I know movies. Yeah, <laughs> like I'm going to direct and star in movies. It's like one of the most difficult things you can do in the entertainment world. Right. But he's like, "Hey, I'm Prince. I can play every instrument. <laughs> How hard can this be? Anybody else? Yeah, I've got the best voice that you've ever heard. I can outdance you. I can direct movies. Right. Mel Gibson's doing it. He's in the movie. He's directing the movie. Right. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, outside of the bounds of the time period, I would agree with you. Like deciding that you can direct your own movie is takes a certain amount of like hubris. And um, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. But, you know, deciding he was now going to be known as a symbol, just as he was kind of like fading mm -hmm. from the public consciousness, like people, it was almost like he, you know, how like political advisors can almost like say what will get you back into the public consciousness because people can't stop talking about it. And there's no such thing as bad press. So like that just thrust him back into popular culture in a way that I don't think he had been for like a, a kind of like a tailing age group of people that were into music. That is a great point. Just knowing that your audience is going to stay with you, even though you're not Prince anymore yeah. and you're a symbol and then just becoming synonymous with the symbol and monetizing it. Yes. Having outfits made where like, the symbol is the neckline of the costume you're wearing. And I mean, the fact that the, the symbol is a fusion of like yeah. male and female genitalia, just like, right. as, as if he wasn't synonymous with androgyny before. Right. It's like, well, I'm this, I'm everything. Yeah. That's a flex. Yeah. That's, I mean, especially for the time, you know, like sure. what was that? 90. No, it was like 97, 98. I think so. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's a great uh, video you can find on YouTube of him talking to Larry King. Larry <laughs> King did a 1999 end of the millennium interview series. Sure. And one night he has Prince and it's like 40 minutes with Prince. And he's explaining why he became a symbol and he's explaining all sorts of things. It's very interesting. I'll have to watch that. Yeah. Prince as a as a uh, participant in an interview was always an interesting, always an interesting mix. A lot of Zoolander faces come out in those interviews. <laughs> he, <laughs> Prince knew he was cute. Oh, I mean, he was cute. And when you were just showing that video of, um, when you were just showing that video of uh, him coming on stage in the James Brown show after Michael Jackson, like the mic work has to be seen to be appreciated. Mm -hmm. And the first thing I thought when he was, you know, doing like crazy showman magic with that mic. It was like, this dude is absolutely the point guard 
on your basketball team. Awesome athlete. Awesome athlete. Yeah, yeah he, play, like, he played in high school. The, obviously, the Chappelle show thing yes. was I, so funny. And yes. also, I remember in college, the, around the time that I was getting into Prince, the Chappelle show thing, and it might have been that actually may have come out when I was after college. But what a big deal that was to everybody. Um, and you know, not only because it was funny, but the idea that Prince would kick ass at basketball, it's like, sure. He was five foot two. Yeah. It's like the spud web of <laughs> pop and rock. Game. Blouses. I was there. I seen it. <laughs> Chappelle nailed it too. Oh my God. It's perfect. Do we have, who's today's version of Prince? Oh, I'm obviously, think about you can't it, replicate it. Do you have someone top of mind? I'd say the closest thing is Bruno Mars, but give me a break. Oh, he's got great hair yeah. and he's wildly talented. Yeah, and he doesn't have the cultural impact the Prince had. He's also very little and cute. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I feel like I'm so dated. Like I was, I was thinking, I was like, oh yeah, you know this person or that person, but I realized they're like in their forties. They just happen to like be hip hop artists. Um, <laughs> so we're close. Yeah. We're, yeah. It's right in the category. I don't know. Is it Billie Eilish? Oh, interesting. Young. Um, a little bit of like a counter to how females are traditionally packaged as mm -hmm. a pop singer. Um, writes her own stuff or in coordination with her brother, I think, and was raised by two musician parents. Also wow. homeschooled. I don't, he wasn't homeschooled, but like had kind of a, um, eschewing traditional education, I guess. Okay. No, I think that's a great answer and really carved her own way Yeah. into the public consciousness. And yeah. And on her terms. Like yeah. she kind of does it based on what her artistic vision is. Uh, she had that wild kind of thing on uh, Saturday Night Live. I haven't gone back and watched Prince's Saturday Night Live original show, but I'm sure there's something. There's good stuff. Did you, did you see the 2014 him on Saturday Night Live? I can't remember. What, it, what did he play? It was fantastic. He did a medley. He asked Lauren Michaels if he could do one long eight minute music segment instead of doing two of them. And Lauren let him do it. And it was fantastic. And he blew the roof off the place. Uh, Chris Rock was hosting. Oh my it was God. one of the greatest episodes. Of, I'm a Saturday Night Live freak. Yeah, I yeah. love SNL. And if I remember correctly, it was within, I think it was just within a couple of weeks of Jimmy Fallon and Justin Timberlake being the host and musical guest. And I remember it was one of the more annoying episodes ever because yeah. it was just girls shrieking the entire time. Right. And then it was like a week or two later, you had Chris Rock and Prince. It was like, oh, this is like the black version. And it's yeah. so much cooler. Right. <laughs> I'm so much happier watching this one. Um, you know, I'm such a bigger fan of this host and this musical guest. Right. <laughs> but it was it was a great performance. That's that's another one worth looking up. 
Oh, yeah, I'll have to go. That was 2014. Yes. Uh, so what ended it? Was it the scandal? Which scandal? Didn't he have some sort of scandal that like, I don't know. I'm just. I think he had plenty of them. Yeah. Probably. This is, this is when Prince fans are banging their heads against the wall. I know. They're like, it was. <laughs> I would say that obviously it's not like he crashed and burned. It's no. just, uh, he had ridiculous output and yeah. you're just not going to stay on top the whole time. But, you know, to, to tease my, my next question is, were there any bounce back moments? And there were a ton of them. Yeah. I mean, the Batman album, which yeah. artistically not great, uh, right. commercially did really well. Uh, and Emancipation was a huge hit. Musicology was huge and won a few Grammys. I'd say the Super Bowl performance. Yeah. The Chappelle show <laughs> sketch. He gets points well, for that. And I think too, like you can kind of judge a person's legacy by like the collective mourning that takes place when they pass, you know? And like, it's weird as you age and you're the people you kind of grew up with get older. Um, Prince hit me pretty hard. Like I would say next to Bowie dying, like that was, it was a gut punch. Yeah. That was a tough couple of years there. Yeah. Where did Tom Petty fall with you in terms of how much it impacted you? I don't know that I was like, I um, liked, you know, the wildflowers and that album, but I really didn't know as much of his earlier stuff, like running down a dream and those types of things. I appreciated his musicianship. Um, yeah, it didn't hit me as, as much. I heard he was a really nice guy though, which made me sadder. Like, <laughs> like I heard he was like a really quality human being. Uh, yeah. Feels very believable with Petty. Petty was my dude. I was yeah. I was bummed out. Yeah. I created an awkward moment when uh, I found out Tom Petty died because I was at work oh, no. and a guy walked up to me. And he's like, "What a day!" You know, Tom Petty died, and I was like, <gasps> "What he what? What he?" Oh no! And he's like, "Yeah, man." And I was like, "All right, I'm um, I'm gonna go take a walk." <laughs> he was he was apologizing to me, and I was like, "No, it's fine." I just. <laughs> I'm sorry if I made it weird, but I can't just hear the Tom Petty died and turn around and get back to work. That was. Yeah. Who yeah. else do you think beyond Tom Petty, like is alive right now? Who's going to be your next Tom Petty? Oh God. <laughs> we're really, we're really ending on a positive note. My next Tom Petty. Well, hopefully uh, I'm going to be upset when Bob Dylan dies in a way mm -hmm. that's going to be not quite as sad just because he's older. Yeah. But uh, yeah, Tom Petty, Paul McCartney. Yeah. That'll, that'll be a rough one. Billy Joel, Bruce oh, yeah, Springsteen. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of them. Thanks for bringing it up. Just want to emotionally prepare you so you're not <laughs> caught off guard by that douchebag again. <laughs> We've already run traps on it, John. Who's going who's gonna to be the one that emotionally devastates you? It's going to be Neil Young mm. and uh, definitely Stevie Nicks. I'm surprised she's still alive, to be honest. But like, here we are. Uh, I think I'm. Hmm. I know this. Is like, I think if like if Killer Mike were to die, I'd be real bummed. <laughs> I'd be real upset about it. Um, yeah. For sure. I think a lot of people would. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I'm late to the Killer Mike game. So, uh, yeah, but those are those are the three people that come to mind right off that bat. Well, those are good ones. Those are three that I hope don't die. Yeah, ever. me too. Me too. I feel like <laughs> we can just like, can't we just upload their consciousness now? Like before Bob Dylan kicks it, he's got some more stuff in him. He's just older. Like, let's just figure out what the singularity needs to be in order for him to like make it over the rainbow bridge first or something. Yeah. Come on, science. Get on what that. What are you doing, scientist? <laughs> After you do the vaccine, can you work on uploading Bob Dylan's brain and spiritual? That's one and two. That's right. So final question. Was Prince underrated or did he get the respect that he deserved? Oh, I think he was underrated. Just by virtue of being black. I think he was probably not like with the Tipper Gore shit, you know, like I think that there's, there was a lens through which he was viewed that was uh, going to keep him from getting the accolades that I think he deserved. Now, did he, I think he elevated like the predecessors that, you know, Smokey Robinson and, and James Brown and the people that kind of came before him in terms of like, you know, funk musicians, but yeah, I feel like he definitely, um, I mean, look at Michael Jackson. Like he basically like bleached his skin and became, you know, more and more popular in United States culture. So that's, I don't know. That's, uh, I'm waiting into weird territory in my response, John, but I do think he was underrated. <laughs> no, I, I, obviously there's probably going to be large factions of people that were never going to give him the credit that he deserved. But I don't know if, if those same people uh, immerse themselves in pop music anyhow. But, I, you know, I don't know which came which comes first, you know, yeah. an, an open-mindedness when it comes to culture and an open-mindedness when it comes to race. Um, but I, I do think that it, it, it is, he did sell over a hundred million albums in his career. So it's not as if he didn't have success. Yeah. No, um, he was no Harry Nelson. Let's be clear, but he right. did, I do think that uh, he could have reached like a, a wider fame um, with more kind of like the general music populace. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And you, you already heard me that I thought he was better than Michael Jackson. So uh, he certainly didn't have Michael Jackson's fame. No. <laughs> Not that you start giving that to everybody and then it doesn't mean anything. But, um, but I thought he was terrific. And Erica, thank you so much for joining me and doing this. With yeah, me. thanks for having me on, John. Do you have anything that you want to promote before you get out of here? Oh, um, nothing specific, but uh, for listeners, just make sure you're supporting your uh, local comedians, uh, buying their albums, going to Zoom shows and giving them that good cash monies. There you go. That is a message that I can wholeheartedly get behind. Thank you guys for listening. If you have anything that you want to reach out and talk to me about, you can read me, reach me at peakspod at gmail.com. I'm on Instagram now, which is a big deal for me because I'm like, I wanted to not do the social media thing, but it's like, yo, I got a podcast. I'm going to do that. So peaks podcast, look me up at Instagram. Is it peaks underscore pod? peaks podcast i'm so good at this anyhow you'll find me <laughs> erica thank you so much everybody be safe out there this has
been a presentation from the Wasted Robot Network. For more information, and links to other shows please visit www.wastedrobotrecords.com slash podcasts.